You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Gonna break Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. As always, I am Danny Anderson, hosting you for today's discussion. Uh, I'm my normal day job. I teach English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. Uh, but in my spare time, which I don't have enough of, but um, because of this show, I host this show. Uh, and today, I'm really excited. This one, I don't really have. Um, I'm going to be kind of a bystander and a not so innocent bystander for this show. We're going to be uh, discussing Dungeons and Dragons, and I think we have a really interesting um, angle to take on it. This is uh, one of my favorite things about the show is when people come to me and uh, and offer me great ideas and are willing to just sort of uh, introduce me to something that I was unaware of. And today um, we have that in spades. So, um, but real quickly, I've um, before we get into that, I do have a, a new iTunes review that I want to uh, just kind of uh, give some uh, thanks to uh, by David Burris. Despite the internet's constant solicitations for me to rate everything I do online. Generally, I avoid leaving them. However, I have now listened to about two-thirds of the Sectarian Interview episodes, and I'm increasingly finding the program one of my favorite podcasts to listen to, moving it up to the top wherever it drops. Danny Anderson is such a gracious and encouraging host. Um, that's way too nice. Uh, although, uh, un- oops, although unshy, uh, about stating and contending for his particular point of view. He does so in a charitable and good-natured way that discussions are always civil, uh, constructive, and interesting. As someone who is both a college professor at a public institution, as well as a highly involved in what would most, uh, in what most would identify as an evangelical Christian church, I am always interested in discovering conversations that challenge and pull apart right-left political and theological categories, as well as provide critical reflection on the practices, assumptions, and slogans ubiquitous within the American, especially evangelical Protestant, church, from the standpoint of someone who is both in it and committed to it. Uh, SR is a program that does precisely that. I don't prefer every guest that comes on or uh, on the or the subtle but present uh, postmodern vernacular that tinges the way uh, many teachers in the humanities converse about issues. But on the whole, SR is a worthwhile, fun, and engaging program for Christians and non-Christian thinkers alike. I, that's a long post. I thank you for letting me read it. Um, I really do appreciate the feedback. And at this point in the semester, it's always nice to hear people say nice things about me because um, it uh, sort of makes me... Uh, uh, makes me feel uh, like I'm doing something good in the world out here. So uh, thank you, David, for that. And anybody else who wants to give us some feedback, you don't have to be nice. I can take uh, harsh criticism. Uh, please do uh, give us a review on iTunes. That does apparently help people, more people find the show via that uh, very widely used platform. Um, enough of that, though. Let's get into this topic for today, Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, let me first introduce Nathan Gilmore. Nathan has some explaining to do because uh, uh, his podcast, The Christian Humanist Podcast, is already done a show about Dungeons and Dragons. So Michael Farmer wants to know why he's doing another one, but we'll get into that in a minute. Nathan, how are you? I am doing all right. We're on fall break at Emmanuel College, which is a function of the uh, much vaunted early start of the fall semester at Emmanuel. So uh, doing this podcast today and then meeting up with some English department alumni for lunch in Athens. So 
looking forward to a good day. That's awesome. Nathan's always a uh, Nathan's a good friend of mine. He's always welcome on the show, and um, he usually has great ideas. And this is another one of his. Um, one of his great ideas was our co-host for the show, uh, Will Thomas Clapp. Uh, Will, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. It uh, finally stopped raining in Northern Virginia. We finally have some sunshine for the first time in a week, so it's going to be great. Yeah, weather talk has dominated here lately. A couple <laughs> on, on the last couple of episodes, uh, my guests were from New Bern, North Carolina, right? And so they uh, had to deal with the hurricane. And so, yeah, his his home was okay as it turned out. But um, but yeah, it's kind of a scary time. But Will, um, you are. We, we'll get into why um, Nathan thought of you for this episode. But you have. Uh, why don't you tell us about how you and Nathan met? So we met at the uh, Humber Christianity Theology Beer Camp in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, I, I'm a listener to the, uh, not maybe not all, but most of the podcasts on the network at some point or time or another, and uh, wanted to talk with him and just started chatting. That's awesome. And you guys had a really interesting conversation about Dungeons and Dragons. So um, I, I don't know if we want to... Uh, um, uh, get into that yet or do we want to save that maybe for when we start talking about your particular like use of the show but uh you lead a uh, a group of pastors in uh, a game an ongoing game of D. yeah i do and uh i started playing as a kid and a little bit and then uh when you get into college and stuff i got a little busy and didn't have time for you know to sit around and play a game as then in seminary even busier but uh I got back into playing Dungeons and Dragons probably, I don't know, three years ago or so, and I play in a game with some guys I went to high school with, I lead a game for a group of pastors, I lead another game for a group of friends, so uh, it, yeah, I've gotten into playing a lot more Dungeons and Dragons as I've gotten older. And you're the dungeon master, right? For two of those games, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, Nathan, what is your experience with playing this game? Uh, it's similar to Will's, except I haven't come back. Uh, you know, I started playing uh, Rifts, actually, which is one of the Palladium system games, along uh, about junior high, and did that for a little while. Played some uh, superhero-based role-playing games, uh, the Palladium one, uh, Heroes Unlimited, as well as uh, the Champion system. Uh, played some Shadowrun, played some Cyberpunk, did play some Dungeons & Dragons for a while, although it was never my main game. Um, and all that time, I mean, you know, I was almost always the game master or the dungeon master, uh, you know, on occasion, you know, friends of mine would take over a game so that I could be a character for once, but by and large, they wanted me to do the storytelling part of it. Uh, and then I discovered once I got to college that all that time, those, you know, five or six years in Indiana that I'd been doing it, that I'd actually been good at it. And I discovered that because I get into a game with a really, really bad dungeon master. Uh, and I discovered that not all games ran the way that ours did. Uh, now, I mean, what's interesting about my situation now is that, you know, just with work responsibilities and everything else, I just don't have the time really to, to get together. Although now I've got ministry majors at Emmanuel College inviting me to play Dungeons and Dragons with them. Uh, so, you know, when I talked to Will and I found out, you know, that there are actual you know, ministers, dungeon dragon groups. Uh, I said, okay, this is, this is a cool little, uh, intersection of things that, uh, the Christian humanist radio network is interested in. So, you know, then, uh, will, I, I, I think you responded to a, or no, you actually just, uh, you know, tweeted at me about the, uh, dungeons and dragons episode on the Christian humanist podcast Yeah, and said, you know, 
uh, I wish you'd gotten into this. I wish you'd gotten into this. And I said, well, there's still time, man. We can go talk, talk to Danny. <laughs> Danny. <laughs> Pretty much if I say, Danny, let's do a show on this. He says, when can we record? So <laughs> give, give it to Mikey. He'll eat anything, right? Yeah. Um, that's, uh, yeah. And, and that's what the show is for, kind of, right? Is to give a place for us to uh, uh, do the things we want to do uh, and take. take uh, one thing I increasingly do see the show is doing is taking things seriously that some people are not prone to take seriously enough, right? And so I think Dungeons and Dragons is one of those things. And so, um, oh, sure. And Danny, just in case this doesn't become the official ep- uh, episode title. I just want to note that I wanted to call it Dungeon Masters and Baptist Pastors. Oh, it's going to be the title. I saw it on there. That's, I've already got the, 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 the album art working for it. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great title for it. So, um, yeah, that's a perfect sectarian review title, actually. So, um, no, well done, sir. So, um, before we get into kind of the nuts and bolts of the game and and kind of the ethical like work that it does in building community and whatnot and storytelling and its role. Um, I think we got to step back uh, into sort of my youth. It's amazing to me, Nathan, that you have ministry majors playing Dungeons and Dragons, right? This is a, oh, a, me too, man. This me is too. a vast turnaround from when I was a kid growing up in the church, right? And so uh, the idea back then was that this was a sort of dangerous entree to witchcraft and the it was wrapped up in the satanic panic of the 80s um and there was a particular we did a show um several um, well several long long time ago about chick tracks and there was a very famous um chick track about basically dungeons and dragons um and uh and that kind of thing really kind of was inseparable from the the way that this game was received by the church um so do you want to talk a little bit about that kind of dark history (laughs) of evangelical uh, reactions to this game? Well, Will, you're a little bit younger than I am, so I'll, I'll lead off here. Um, when I was in high school in the, well, I'll start in junior high in the late 80s, uh, and then on into high school in the early 90s, I mean, the satanic panic had certainly uh, ebbed a bit. Uh, you know, when I told people that I was playing it, uh, it wasn't an outright, uh, you know, immediate top of the prayer list kind of thing, but it was still an air of suspicion, right? Uh, the game had only been around, you know, less than 20 years at that point. Uh, and, you know, because it had so early been affiliated with, you know, the satanic cults and what whatnot, you know, that, again, historians have, you know, unveiled were largely over-reported. Uh, you know, there was still that suspicion around it. And it didn't, it didn't uh, help, there we go, uh, that in my ha- t- hometown of Plainfield, uh, that there was a guy named Tommy Tom. And Tommy Tom, if you're listening, I'm going to tell your story. So <laughs> I, I, just knowing what I knew about you back then, you probably don't have the cash to come to Georgia to hurt me. But And, be, uh, and based strictly on your name, you're automatically invited to be a guest on the Sectarian Review Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he got high as a kite and found a stray cat and actually did cut it open in a graveyard in Plainfield, Indiana. So I think that the Dungeons and Dragons panic was probably even a little bit more intense than it was in a lot of the Midwest because of that particular incident. Um, and so, you know, when I got to um, college, like I said, I double majored in English and philosophy, so I had no time for anything, much less Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but when I got, you know, uh, to be an assistant professor of English, you know, here in Georgia, I discovered that a lot of my students and a lot of those people, ministry majors, were playing Dungeons and Dragons. 
And the sense that I get, and, you know, Will, you can fill in that gap because I kind of trailed off at 1995 and picked off at 2009. Um, the sense that I get is that the wild popularity of the Pete Jackson Tolkien movies and then the wild popularity of World of Warcraft, the, the massively multiplayer online game, probably at the very least cleared some ground so that ministry majors could play it without, you know, uh, invoking much of the suspicion of the 80s and 90s. Will, is that the sense that you get? Well, uh, there's that combined with just, the, I think, the overall increase in popularity of geek culture. Uh, so when I, because when I started playing, it would have been about the mid 90s. And not only, and I grew up in a small town in Texas. And so this, this satanic panic was still, I mean, I remember my mother asking me when I finally told her that I was playing Dungeons and Dragons with friends, like, isn't that kind of satanic? And I was like, it's like we sit around and we act like we're wizards and, you know, barbarians and stuff. Like, I don't know what's satanic about that. We're fighting bad things, you know, kind of in the story. Um, but uh, it just wasn't cool, you know. I mean, I my dad was a high school football coach, and football's huge and everywhere, not just in North Texas. And, uh, you know, you got bullied for reading comic books or liking, you know, uh, liking Dungeons and Dragons or fantasy. And there wasn't back then you know there wasn't marvel wasn't cranking out a superhero movie uh, every quarter and there wasn't uh there wasn't a resurgence of the you know the jackson tolkien uh, interpretation and stuff like that so uh, i think as that as as that part of the culture shifted there because there's a lot of crossover people who read comic books a lot of times those i mean if you go to a comic book store they probably have a gaming section and maybe some tables in the back where people might be playing Dungeons and Dragons or Warhammer or any of those other fantasy games that we all kind of did late at night and didn't tell anybody about because we were afraid we were going to get beat up when we were kids. And now, you know, everybody's playing it. Um, uh, it's it, or Everybody's reading comic books or going to see Marvel movies and maybe going into a comic book shop to check something out, you know, and, and it's just... So I think uh, not only that revival of just fantasy but also just this larger explosion of geek culture of people thinking Comic-Con is cool to go to and, you know, that kind of thing. Just all helps increase the popularity of the game. Right. My favorite exhibit of this, Will, is the fact that the uh, Indianapolis Colts offensive line, instead of going to nightclubs when they're on the road, they play Catan. <laughs> That's, yeah. Yep. And, and it's a game led by Andrew Luck, which I think is just awesome, even though <laughs> Andrew Luck hasn't turned out to, you know, do much as far as the Colts offense goes. He is one of those great nerd athletes that I, I will claim as a, a Hoosier in exile. <laughs> the great neckbeard. Um, yes. Um, um, yeah. The uh, Catan is a fun game, actually. I, I do play that one. That, that has less of a, a fantasy, like storytelling role to it, but uh, it, it is a fun game to play. Um, and um, also, I think that you know, Stranger Things is probably. I wonder if it's like contributing to this as well, because those kids are, are sort of like modern heroes for a lot of people today, and and they're shown there playing. Dungeons and Dragons, you know, at the, uh, at the beginning of that show, right? And so it's it's what got my wife into playing. Oh, uh, like I've been playing with my group of friends. We're there's a there's an online hosting service that we can probably talk more about later called Roll Twenty. It's a website, and it'll do you can it does everything for you online. It rolls the dice, it has your character sheet, so you can play, and it hosts video chat, so you can play with people all over the country. So <laughs> I play with a group of guys I went to high school with. That's the game I've been playing in the longest at this point, and. Uh, it was every, every, you know, once a week we would play. And, and I told, you know, it's like, you know, 
told my wife, you know, I love you, but I need to take a moment and spend some time with my friends. And she was cool with that. But she didn't understand the game or what was going on and why we were laughing our tails off or what we were talking about when she'd overhear us. And then she watched, started watching Stranger Things and they played Dungeons and Dragons. And in fact, I played out of that same rule book. That was the first rule book I played out of. Granted, it was a really old one by the time I got it. Yeah. Um, but that Advanced Dungeons and Dragons second edition rule book. And uh, she was like, oh, this, okay, I think I might want to give this a shot. And so she started joining us. And yeah, so yeah, stuff like that. Any Anytime that game makes its way into popular culture and it's not, the the people who are playing it aren't seen as weird or outsiders. They, they become the protagonist of the story. Yeah. It seems to increase the popularity of the game. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you'd also mention, Will, uh, comic shops. Like, I live right around the corner from a, a really nice little comic shop uh, in Evansburg, Pennsylvania, called Codex Comics, and they do they have a back room where they host games all the time. And I, I kind of, like, look at those people from the outside, like, kind of longingly wanting to join the group. Uh, I mean, I've been increasingly interested in, like, societal loneliness as, as a problem in, in, in American yeah. society. And, and I do think that little events like this are, I mean, I say little, not in a derisive way, but um, events like this are um, a way to combat that, right? You're creating yeah. community around some a common interest. And, and I'm a little older than Nathan, and so um, I'm... I remember the time in church where we used to actually throw Halloween parties when I was a little kid, right? And and we would make the back room into a haunted house, right? And then I remember when that went out of fashion because of the satanic panic. Um, and then I remember the kind of healing that came from that. And so I um, I had a group of friends basically when I was in elementary school who played Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, I played with them once, and my mom was just really upset about it all. And so um, I, I just kind of never got into that. And I, I really think that was probably my people, right? That yeah. uh, I was not allowed to connect with because of this, uh, this verboten nature of, uh, of Dungeons and Dragons in the evangelical church. And so, yeah, I'm really happy to see that, you know, th- I think you're probably right. I think Tolkien's influence and his overt Christianity, um, has kind of rescued that, um, that kind of activity for the, for many people now. And so you're, I'm sure there's still places that are, you know, their hackles will go up when you talk about it, but by and large, I think we're over that moment and that's a great thing. Um, and so, well, um, why don't we get a little bit into your story about the, the pastor's group that you, uh, uh, that you lead. I think that's, to me, that's the, the evolution. <laughs> that's like a little symbol of the evolution that we've come to in, in, as a church. Yeah. So, um, I don't know about, I can't, I don't, I can't speak for every denominational body, but, uh, um, a lot of my friends who are ministers ecumenically, so different backgrounds, not just Baptists, but they talk about, we all talk about how our, the denominational organization has this, they, they try to encourage uh, communi- you know, community between ministers, and we call it in our group peer, uh, peer learning groups, and it's just a way for us to get together, you know, however often your group decides, and you do something to, together to help kind of increase your education or, you know, something around an issue through combined, uh, you know, cooperative learning. Um, the thing about it is it's always you get together and you're reading a book or you're trying to do some kind of project or you're talking about some specific ministry thing. So what the idea had started was uh, it's very difficult as a minister to, to get to express your full humanity sometimes in a church or in a congregation because, they're always looking at you as pastor. Yeah. And that's good or bad. We can, you know, that's, I'm not here to, I'm not trying to debate that. 
but you know you it, it's like the the old joke about whenever you're on you know somebody's on the golf course and then they you know, the third person that they don't know in the threesome it turns out oh he's a pastor and then everybody gets real quiet <laughs> and uh, you know they they've been they've been laughing and joking and maybe using some blue language and stuff but now they know that's a pastor so they stop doing it you know and and I've seen that in real life you know uh, people ask me what I do and I tell them and they their face just <gasps> oh no I can't I got to watch what I say um, but uh, so. Ministers trying to get together is the idea that you you know people know the role they understand the job and the stress, and then they can look past that to see your humanity, and you can look past their role to see their humanity, and it helps us bond. But we're always talking about church. We're still talking about our congregations. We're still trying to in these groups, these peer learning groups. We're getting together and still trying to figure out how we're going to preach the next week or what kind of ministries we're going to start. And sometimes. Just like everybody else, we need to be able to go to a place and just have a little fun. Just laugh, joke, have a good time, get to know each other, and not have the pressure of trying to learn or trying to contribute on a deep spiritual basis. And so I like playing Dungeons and Dragons, and so I thought maybe why don't I get some friends together and we'll all play Dungeons and Dragons. And we don't have to talk about being in a church or, you know, what, you know, read a book for. Uh, uh, some kind of continuing education. We can do that someplace else and then come here and just have fun and relax and actually get to know one another as something other than how well you preach or what your theology is or how quick you are on your feet when it comes to ethics or something like that, that we can actually just have a little fun, be creative, tell a story, laugh with each other, maybe cry with each other, and then, you know, do so- have a different experience of of one another. So it's very much a, a community building activity, right? Um, and, and yeah, yeah, that's that's a great thing, Nathan. You were about to say something. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, I, I think it was the uh, second night of theology beer camp when Will told me this story, and uh, you know, being unable to resist a dumb joke, I said, "So does everybody play clerics?" <laughs> and, and and without cracking a smile, Will said, "Well, some of them do." <laughs> like, okay, okay, that was a bad joke. I- <laughs> Why, of course. What's wrong with you? <laughs> How can the mission Everybody's become... got to have a healer, man. Come That's on. right. How can the mission <laughs> succeed with the... we don't have any clerics? <laughs> um, yeah, that's great. Um, absolutely. And, I, and I, I'm fully in support of these kinds of uh, I, I sort of non-evangelical community building activities. I feel like in the church, everything has to have sort of a, a, tele- a teleology where yeah. how does this actually serve to save people, right? And and I think uh, what we're missing in that kind of um, mission-oriented approach to everything is the fact that people live together in community and that's what's kind of at risk in our society are these communities of people and people are feeling alone. And um, let's why not create spaces where the big questions of the universe aren't necessarily what's driving everything we do. Yeah. I mean, it, so <laughs> there was a, there was a hymn we used to sing at my little small town church. And when I say small town, like it was 5,000 people in my town. I had 68 people in my graduating class from high school. It was a small town. So it's a small town church. But every week we used to sing this hymn and the only, and I can't remember what the title of it was, but I can still remember the words. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. But part of being like, I don't know about y'all's families, but in my family, we weren't always doing something like Mm. fixing the fence or, you know, something like, yeah, those events happen, but we didn't do that constantly. 
But but in the family of God or in church, we seem to be doing that all the time, trying to, you know, repaint the house or in, in, you know, in, in a metaphor, I guess, that we're trying to repaint the house or build something new, build a new barn or a new shed, that we're always doing something. We don't do a lot of being. Like you said, there's always a teleology to it. Um, sometimes we need a little ontology, probably yeah. just like, just the idea of being, and uh, uh, and so I, uh, that's why I wanted to do it. Just I wanted to be around people and laugh and and see a different side of them. Yeah, yeah, that's great, and and engage their imagination, right? I think people learn about themselves uh, in ways through the imagination. Let me. I, I want to spin the next question off into Nathan, but I want to kind of use Carter Stepper's comment here as a bridge to that. Uh, I a few days ago had asked on Facebook if there were any kind of questions from listeners. My listeners are great about responding about that kind of thing. So if you're not on the Facebook page, uh, you know, check it out, and I'll put out a call for comments every now and then. And this one got a particularly rich number of comments, and so Carter great friend of the show. Um, I started playing with a, a group two months ago and man, this is the funnest hobby I've ever had. Um, I guess <laughs> what has grabbed me as an adult by the game is the dynamic creativity. The dungeon master plans a mission, but those playing have options within it and sometimes do unexpected things. It's interesting to me, especially because imagination seems to change a lot in people as they grow older. And my question is, is there a cognitive benefit to playing this game in terms of creativity or imagination? I want to get. To, I want to hold his question off because we do have a section planned for that uh, later on. But the idea of having a fun hobby with other people and using parts of your brain that you're not using yeah. is, is a great thing, right? And I, I appreciate that as well. Um, you guys are kind of. Con- I'm not a player to this day, right? Um, but uh, you guys are convincing me I should find my own game here. <laughs> but um, but Nathan, so in addition to like in the evangelical sort of barrier to this game. I think there's also been a technological one um, that has replaced that and that we've kind of gone into the video game era and yeah. And somehow mm-hmm. this game has made a resurgence um, out of that milieu too, just as it kind of emerged out of an evangelical sort of ban on it. Um, people are kind of rediscovering this game in a way like, why do you suppose that is? Well, first of all, I think that, you know, video games, uh, can get you know amazingly complex, and especially when you get into multiplayer games, uh, you get uh, what I call the creativity of unintended consequences. So things that the people actually writing the code, doing the design, never would have imagined. People figure out a way to uh, manipulate the elements in certain ways so that they do things that, again, the designers, the programmers wouldn't have wouldn't have imagined, and yet you are still limited by the if-then structure of computer programming in what's possible in a game, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the only real creativity is rearranging those ifs and those thens. So, you know, if, if I can use a, a bad analogy here, if the video game is a digital technology, then the, you know, the dice and pencils game is an analog technology. Uh, basically, any direction that your imagination can go, those things can happen in the game, right? Uh, and, you know, I used to read Dragon Magazine. I don't know if that was still around when you <laughs> were playing games, Will. Yep, yep. But that, that's, that, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, I think really uh, set me free as a dungeon master and, and something that I wish that the people that I played with in college had read, that the story is everything and don't uh, let the rules of the game limit what you do with your story just invent a new rule right yeah uh so again i mean i think that you know the creativity happens on that rule level to be sure you know if there's a 
something you want to happen in the game and the rules don't exist, you invent new rules for it, right? Very Wittgenstein that way, right, Danny? Yeah, oh yeah. Um, and <laughs> it's not even Ven's day. Um, go ahead. Then you got that. Uh, you have the creativity of imagining yourself into a character who's very different from you, right? Uh, so, you know, whether we're talking about one of Tolkien's species that gets pretty much imported whole cloth into Dungeons & Dragons, or whether we're talking about someone from a way of life that you're not familiar with, you know, either a criminal element or a military person or whatever else, you are, you know, being someone else for a while. Um, And again, what a video game tends to do, and and if you guys have played more recent role-playing games, I'm happy to be corrected on this, and listeners, that goes for you double. Um, What I tend to do when I do these uh, you know, video game role-playing games. And again, I played, you know, the Dragon Warrior series, the Final Fantasy series, up to the point where I didn't have time for the Final Fantasy series anymore. But what I tended to do was to think strategically rather than in terms of narrative when I, when I did my characters. I wanted to maximize mm. the odds that I would come out successful in any given encounter, right? And honestly, I mean, that's... And I, have, I had no plans of bringing up this episode, but... Uh, the reason that the Leroy Jenkins video is so hilarious, and listeners, if you haven't seen that, really need to watch it. I'll put a link that to that in the show notes. This group of people who are, in a very literal historical sense, calculating the probabilities that their party, as currently configured, will win this encounter, and then Leroy gets back and just charges into the room and shouts his own name, <laughs> and you know, all of these people who are very strategic minded, just, I mean, honestly, for my money. That's the best part of the video is them just cussing a blue streak at him. Don't watch it with the kids in the room, by the way, uh, because they messed up their strategy, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, his, his his immortal reply: "At least I have chicken." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know that. I mean, to my mind, illustrates you know, in addition to the to the, the glory that is Leroy Jenkins, uh, the habits of mind, and you know, now now shifted from you know. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons to Jamie Smith, but this is sectarian review. We're allowed to do that. <laughs> I love him. But those habits of mind that develop when you are thinking strategically, right? Uh, you think of the game as something to be won rather than something to be enjoyed. And for that reason, Leroy Jenkins becomes, for the rest of the world, this glorious moment of chaos. But for those guys cussing him, um, you know, he ruins what the game's all about. So, well, I, I just wandered all over the place, Danny. Uh, Will, do you have anything more targeted to say? I mean, no, I think you're, I think you're very much right. So, I mean, they, every time a new video game comes out, they try to, they, they, they try to talk about how the, you know, it, the, the full world interactive experience, like the new Spider-Man that just came out, everybody's talking about that. You can go and do all of this stuff. I have a friend who's playing it and is very much in love with it. And, um, However, those are responses that are programmed into the game for when your character arrives at that point. Like, uh, you know, they—they're not. You're not going to be able to, like, if if I play the game and my character and I take Spider-Man to this part of New York City, that's going to happen. If you do that, it's going to happen. It's not like we're going to have a different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and that's and. And I and I am amazed. I've never been a huge video game guy. We didn't, I couldn't afford them when I was a kid, um, and just so then, so I just never got into them. But I'm amazed at what they do with video games now and the stories that they're telling. And and they're not just doing voice acting anymore. They're making them do motion capture. These actors putting on these suits, and so they're trying to create 
full embodied characters that you can immerse yourself with. But the responses to what happens that the player interacts with, those are still programmed responses. You know, you can't change, like, it, you, everybody's going to have the same experience of the game. They're not, I mean, they may have a different emotional experience because of things in their life, but they're going to have the same things happen to them. Role-playing right. games I mean, aren't like that. They're just not going to be like that because me as a dungeon master is not the same as Nathan as a dungeon master is not the same as anybody else. Me as a player is not the same as you as a player. We're going to make, we're going to think differently and we're going to, not just the characters that we created are different, but we're going to have different ways of attacking a problem of thinking about and, 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 and responding to and interacting with points in the narrative. That's, that's, it's just, we're, we're, because human beings have, that ability to, even though we're very similar, we can still we can still surprise each other and do weird things and make weird decisions and you know and choose to we make odd choices sometimes and so it's going to be different and that's that's why I think you can't get that experience from a console or or a, or, or a computer no matter how hard you try you just can't. And it's interesting. I mean, what Will was just narrating there reminds me of the English romantic notion of creativity, right? Um, you know, that's one of the things that I always relate to my students that, you know, our modern notion of creativity is only about 250 years old. Uh, and it's the notion that in that moment of poetry for them, but gaming, as Will just, you know, narrated, something comes into the world in that moment that wasn't in the world before. It actually gets created, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that creativity happens with video games, but Will's absolutely right. It happens in the, you know, the studio's where the game is being published, you know, the creativity to a large extent ends there in a way that it is by definition continuous in that in-person gaming. Yeah. Yeah. It's a product you're buying. It's not a activity that you're doing sort of. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah. And Will had mentioned the Spider-Man game. One of my students actually was just talking to me the other day about that game. Um, and apparently we're going to start up a, uh, a gaming society here on campus and whatnot. And so I was trying to tell him about this and, um, and he said that he likes that game, but he doesn't even like to play the, the missions or whatever. He just likes to swing around the city in the world that they created. Right. And so there is something about him trying to do something outside of an end goal. Like that, that is the most interesting thing about that game for him. And honestly, I feel like my, my pastor, my friend, Rob, uh, Osborne has been on the show a few times. He, um, and I talk about sports a lot, um, in terms of the hold it has on America's imagination. And so much of our kind of, uh, morality is defined through either sports metaphors or sports themselves. And, and, uh, and he made the point to me that, that sports has a very easy outcome. It's like, it's very clear to see who wins or who loses a game, who succeeds or who fails on a play. Uh, and so it's a kind of an easy form of more of moral like being right. And, uh, <laughs> and it doesn't have any ambiguity. It doesn't leave room for ambiguity. Right. And so, and um, that's what we can't stomach as a society, but that's probably what we need. Right. And this is yeah. the gap that, uh, that, uh, that these role-playing games can fill, I think. So, yeah, that's um, excellent stuff. Um, on this note, uh, somebody had a comment about this. Um, let me, uh, the second question that Carter had, and Jeff Reed, another listener, responded to this as well. A charge um, about of escapism uh, as, a, as a slur against games like this. Uh, how do you respond to people say that, well, you're just trying to escape the quote-unquote real world uh, by, uh, by immersing yourself in a fake life uh, in this way? Like, how, how would you respond to that? 
Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> like it's um, the perfect answer. <laughs> so the day, so the day we're recording this is the uh, so. Full disclosure, I live inside the Beltway of Washington, D.C., so I live around the nation's capital. Mm. The day after we're recording this, or the day that we're recording this is the day after the Kavanaugh hearings uh, for uh, Supreme Court Justice, uh, in which Dr. Ford gave her testimony, and I watched uh, her testimony, I watched his testimony, and uh, I watched what some of the senators said, and afterwards, I really wanted to get away. I really wanted to get away because I don't like we um, that's, uh, you know, sometimes it gets overwhelming. Sometimes life does, you know, when when you're I mean, it's not just the stuff that happens on the national stage, but sometimes doing your taxes and doing your finances and trying to pay your bills and, 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 and meeting all your obligations can get overwhelming. And we do need to get away a little bit. That's why people take vacations. We're trying to escape. Like, so, yeah, yeah, it's it's escapism. Like, I don't. Uh, it, I, I will. I don't. I don't take that as a slur because sometimes we need that. I, I really believe it. We need to do something fun. We need to. We need to be able to step out and put our cares down for a little bit and have an experience. And experience the full emotions that we have as human beings. To experience our creativity that we're not being used. That's not being used to process emotions in ways that we don't normally process them on a day-to-day basis, and then step back in. We need that. And I'll second everything Will just said about uh, the good things about having an escape. And I'll add to that that, I mean, Dungeons & Dragons, because it is an inherently creative activity and because it is an inherently narrative activity, also brings with it a lot of the benefits of literature, which also gets accused of escapism, right? Uh, And I think that, you know, some of those benefits, uh, beyond simply stepping away from the quotidian like Will was just talking about, are that they also give us a critical distance from uh, the things in our lives, right? I mean, one of the things that uh, Martha Nussbaum writes about a fair bit uh, is the fact that, you know, it develops that moral imagination through critical distance, right? Because these are characters that are, in fact, not the people you live with in a day-to-day setting. You can examine them in a way that would be unethical for the people around you because you need to stay involved, uh, but you can bring that distance back to those relationships where you are involved and have a kind of perspective on them that you wouldn't have if you didn't take the time to step away, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and likewise, uh, you know, one of the things about, you know, especially, I would say, you know, cyberpunk-style gaming, right, uh, is that, you know, it does do what speculative fiction does best, which is extrapolate out the parts of our lives that um, sometimes we look over and helps us to see, you know, some of the possible implications of them, right? Uh, You know, one amusing thing that my brother and I always talk about, because whenever we go into a Barnes & Noble, the first thing we always look for to see if they've got the latest edition of Shadowrun out, uh, because every edition of that, they have to radically rewrite it and pretend that, you know, things are happening in the Shadowrun timeline uh, that just happened to correspond to what's happening in the timeline that we inhabit. Yeah. So, you know, between, I think, like the fourth and fifth editions of Shadowrun, all of a sudden you have bloggers appearing. Yeah. And, you know, uh, that's something that when they first wrote that game, you know, uh, no one knew what the heck a blog was. Uh, but then they realized that that's a natural fit for that world, right? You know, the sort of basement-dwelling... Uh, 
or a smartphone. Oh, yeah, that too, that too. Go ahead, Will. That, no, that a smart. I was I was holding up my smartphone in the camera for you know because this is an audio medium. Um, but uh, it's very the, creative of you, though. So yeah, um, smartphones weren't in the game. Like I remember, yeah. I played Shadowrun back before there were smartphones, and so they put those in the game because you have a character like you have this game that's cyberpunk. It's all about cyberspace and being able to hack into computers and use technology. And then this huge technological advance comes around in our society, and the, I can just imagine the guys that write this game going, or the men and women, excuse me, who write this game going, "Crap, <laughs> we have to figure out how to get that in there." <laughs> and, and will they did because I looked at that edition oh, right after the iPhone hit the market. And they completely rewrote the hacking system. Yeah. So that, I mean, basically your entry point could be anywhere that you were within uh, mobile data signal. Now, the funny thing about Shadowrun is that they didn't just reboot the universe. They tried to make it so that that they wrote narrative reasons why there weren't mobile technologies for 40 years. And then they came back. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's pretty great that way. But yeah, I mean, you know, one thing about, you know, William Gibson's novels, which of course were the, you know, or the cyberspace trilogy, I should say, because William Gibson's written a bunch of novels, uh, but is that, you know, everyone gets their information from fax machines, right? Because in 1982, that was the new thing. That was, you know, what was going to revolutionize the world. Now, I mean, you know, really the only practical use for um, fax machines is so that you don't get your messages intercepted, right? So, uh, you know, Will, you can speak to this, but I mean, from what I read, uh, congressmen and senators use fax machines all the time so that their missives to each other don't get intercepted and distributed by WikiLeaks. Well, that's true. And also remember that the average age of a congressman or senator is well over 75. So we need to... <laughs> uh, yeah, true enough, true enough. <laughs> They're still using mimeograph machines to make copies, so... And looking at everything on microfiche. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. And I totally uh, concur with Nathan's point about um, having sort of a moral distance from the day-to-day, -day, right? Um, I think escapism is actually a necessary thing uh, to sort of – it's the only way you're able to question your own assumptions about the world. Uh, if you're not able to escape those assumptions, to look at them from a critical distance, then um, you could very well end up – doing terrible things, thinking you're entirely right in doing them, right? Without having that kind of reflective moment. And so practicing the act of escaping the day-to-day -day is in no way a bad thing, but I think it's actually our moral obligations. Well, and right. one of the, how much stuff has come out recently uh, in different psychology manuals about play, about adults experiencing play and making sure that children experience play. Um, that, you know, one of the, one of, I mean, just go watch a group of kids play. And you, I mean, even when they're outside, like running around like crazy hooligans, like I did when I was a little kid, if you pay, it looks like mass chaos. If you pay attention and get close enough to where you could hear what they're saying, they're trying to tell a story. Yeah. Often they're trying to tell a story. May not be a good story, maybe incredibly, you know, Escher-esque story in some places, <laughs> but they're trying to tell a story, you know, and, and, and. That kind of play is exactly what Dungeons & Dragons is. Maybe we don't run around. Maybe we sit at a table late at night or early in the morning. If you, As we've gotten older, we play in the daylight now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we're trying to tell a story and play and, and just have a little fun. Uh, because we don't do that, you know, except maybe on our vacation. We'll do it once. We'll do it one week out of, you know, 52 in a year. You know, and that's 
not enough. I mean, human beings need more decompression than that. Yeah, absolutely. Nathan. Oh, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to segue too early into it, but I mean, I think that there's some significant theological import to this storytelling as well. Right. I mean, you know, my own, uh, theological training, you know, from seminary and since, um, has largely emphasized, you know, the Bible as among other things, uh, a grand narrative and a counter narrative to the ones that we're accustomed to. Right. Um, and it strikes me that, you know, I, uh, a book that I'm teaching right now to my, uh, seniors at Emmanuel College is The Prophetic Imagination by Walter Brueggemann, mm-hmm. you know, classic, you know, Old Testament theology book. Uh, and it has everything to do with stepping away from the immediate politically effective, strategic-minded mindset that we have and learning to imagine the universe other than we've been taught to, right? Yeah. And he talks about the prophets as, you know, agents not of social change, right? I mean, you can't point to, uh, you know, the meals program that Amos started or the, you know, (laughs) political candidates that Hosea supported, but you can point to the fact that they are telling a story about the world and God's relationship to the world that is radically different from the world of what he calls royal consciousness, right? You know, the the world of uh, expediency and of maintaining royal bloodlines and things like that, right? So it strikes me that, you know, I, I don't think that Dungeons & Dragons is the Bible, so no one write in saying that. <laughs> go, go ahead, write in and say that. You'll, and, you know, you, you're wanting to anyway, go ahead. But uh, I think that if nothing else, that in an analogous sense, um playing these kinds of games trains us in a certain way to receive those very radically different alternative stories. Yeah. Uh, the, the, one of, one of my professors in seminary, uh, when we were doing, uh, every, when I take old Testament classes, uh, I did one on the historical books, uh, and I did one on the prophets with him and he, in his, in you know, the historical books of the, of the, of the old Testament, he, had us read a book by a guy named Robert Polson, who was professor in Indiana, and it was called Moses and the Deuteronomist. And his, it was literary criticism of the Old Testament. And our professor said, you know, the Hebrews were such incredible storytellers that they tell these stories. And then we've become so advanced that we forgot how to read a story. Mm-hmm. And, and so for him, it was going back to looking at like judges and like, this like the literary idea of this circular motion. The people did was right in their own eyes. Then God, you know, raises up somebody to punish the people, and then the people cry out, and then God raises up a judge, and the people will do what's right in God's eyes, you know. And then it happens again. And the idea of eyes and how Samson doesn't actually see what God's doing until his eyes are gouged out. Yeah. In the story, like this, this kind of story of being able to see, and these 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 motifs that run through the narrative. Sometimes it can happen in a Dungeons and Dragons game. If your car- if your dungeon master is creative enough and you get to the end of it and go, oh my gosh, you were dropping hints the whole time. You know, and it's like, now we're telling a story. And so how do we tell stories? You know, uh, that we can, because we're human beings and that's part of what we do. We've done it. We did it with our theology. We told stories in our Bible. We tell stories about Jesus. We tell stories about our experience with Jesus. We tell stories of all the time. Um and so, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a, there's a great connection to our scriptures, to our tradition, and this idea of telling other stories and telling stories 
just for the sake of telling stories sometimes, or telling stories that, about the moral, not necessarily about a historical event. Out, I'm not talking about the Bible, about our games. Like, how do we tell stories about morals? How do we tell stories about our ethics, our pathos of our experience in a way without without, without, without having to be serious or, or you know, can just be fun? So Yeah, right. And, and just to play off of that for a moment, I mean, this is why the stereotypical bad sermon illustration is so bad is because, <laughs> yeah. it la- is because it lacks the complexity that a good novel or a good Dungeons and Dragons game tends to have, right? Uh, it is from the outset designed to prove a single moral point. And when you get to the end of the story, almost everyone in the room already knows how it ends. Uh, and, you know, it is just as forgettable as, you know, a, a pre-programmed story like that tends to be. Yeah, and one of our listeners wants to give shout-outs to the storyteller. He says, uh, it's Brandon Gerbrock. Um, uh, give props to all the people who want to play, could never find a d- dungeon master, so they dungeon mastered for others. The only way I could play was if I took on the role. How nice I bet it was to just show up, play, and leave without days of prep beforehand, right? And so um, I think he's hinting at the the work. I mean, there's like intellectual work that goes into planning these stories for other people, which in and of itself, mm-hmm. as, as Brandon is saying, is an act of generosity and, and, and community and empathy. And, and so, yeah, I think there's a way to view this game as, as a, a really interesting ethical exercise. Um, and the way you guys are talking about, you know, um, the role of the imagination and um, transcending the quotidian and all that, it's right out. I mean, if you want, uh, you know, a quick and easy way to do it, listen to that old David Foster Wallace, this is water speech. I mean, that's, that's the gist of that speech. And a true education is being able to sort of um, understand where you are in relationship to other people to be more empathetic with those other people. Right. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And I think that that uh, Dungeons and Dragons seems like a great way to get into that. Um, Nathan, you had given us a bunch of uh, links um, having to do with. Uh, that was actually Will. Oh, is that Will? OK, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, Will. Um, you'd given us a bunch of links about um, sparking create creativity and writing and things like that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and some specifics? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I found this article. I'd read it when it came out. And then uh, just kind of, you know, it was hanging around in my memory. I had to go find it, though. But uh, New York Times had written an article about uh, a game as a literary tutorial was the title of the article. And they interviewed and talked about a playwright, uh, David Lindsay Abair. Um, and he says that he and they talk with a bunch of other authors that talk about how that their skills in writing, these are published professional authors, this is what they do, that their skill in storytelling, they learned from Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them as players, some of them as dungeon masters, this idea of being able to tell a story. What is it that excites people, gets them involved, connected to the story? Uh, and that they learned that from Dungeons and Dragons. Um, there is, we were talking about what's raised up the popularity of Dungeons and Dragons. There is, uh, you know, in the, in the landscape of new media, all these internet TV channels and stuff that have come up, there is a, a TV show that plays it actually played last night uh called uh, from when we're recording this it played last night it's called critical role mm. uh role is spelled r-o-l-e um like a and it's a collection of voice actors so people who do video games and cartoons and all kinds and stuff like that playing dungeons and dragons i mean and that's it it's not animated you're sitting there watching them sit around a table and play dungeons and dragons and it will the episodes are like four hours long and when they started this 
a few years ago. I can't remember when exactly they started it. They thought they'd do it for like six weeks. It was their, and then it'd be over. They had been playing at home for a few years for fun. And then somebody went, hey, why don't you come on this new media channel that we're starting and play your game? And they thought, who's going to want to want to watch us do this, you know? And because so, the because the joke is, you know, every time you meet somebody who wants to learn about Dungeons and Dragons, they say, "Oh, I'll come watch a game." And everybody who's played is like, "You don't want to watch. You don't want to sit around <laughs> and watch us. You want to play, you know?" Um, but they started this show, and now they have a hundred thousand people watch it every week. Mm-hmm. More? Mm-hmm. No, the like they, they it's. And, and, and they're doing voices and they're creating stories and characters and they're making like they're having moments when people cry and people laugh. And like it is it it made me up my game as a player because I'd never played that. <laughs> I'd never gone to those kind of emotional highs and lows like they're doing. But these are professional actors. So like, you know, me getting there, you know, me and a group of yokels who just play getting there is going to be difficult. But like that has encouraged a lot of people to play. Has opened up the game for a lot of people, um, and, and th- their their storytelling, their their ability to create stories, like it's just it's it's a very creative outlet for them. These people who every day are acting and trying to dig into the pathos of a character that they're given are creating something for themselves from whole cloth and like trying to dig into it, and they're doing it in a very creative. Uh, um, improvisational way because you're just playing off people sitting at the table there's no script you know the dungeon master might have some notes but you never know what the players are going to do and like they're just in this creativity that they're that they experience that they're exerting and showing the world is is a very i mean it's 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 just incredibly emotive and in deep um but the creativity of it can sometimes be a little daunting i think that's why the scariest question every dungeon master asks is so what do you want to do? Yeah. <laughs> so like I've described this city, I've described this town. Now what do you want to do? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this gets a, a comment that Adam Sorber made on the Facebook page too. Um, po- he's talking about podcasts like uh, The Adventure Zone, which I've not listened mm-hmm. to, um, have introduced D&D and other games uh, to a new audience who doesn't play but enjoys the content as a narrative, right? Um, and, and I think you're getting it um, with this other thing. There is something... Um, I, we've always, as a species, loved to sit around a fire and listen to people tell stories, right? Uh, and I think this is a, a form of that, just sort of watching it play out in, 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 a, in a different arena. Yeah, and and the way, I mean, so the question about dungeon mastering, I feel like I didn't fully answer it. I got into it kind of the way that the writer did, was that uh, there was a kind of game I always wanted to play, which is a game that's about the characters you create, like... You know, if you read the book, if you read any of the players' handbooks in any game, whether it's Shadowrun, Dungeons and Dragons, if you go play uh, 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 Deadlands, which is a, a weird western with magic and monsters kind of thing, any of those games, you start reading like you kind of pick your character, and if you're like me, you read all the way. If you're picking a class or a race, if you're like me, you read all the way through the end of that class or race, and you're like, wow. When this character gets powerful, he does really cool. He or she does really cool things. I want to get them up there. Well, you have to play for a while to get that far along. Yeah. And 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 very rarely, like, have we have I ever played in a group that's made it that far? Like, I think the average, I think the average gaming group meets like five or six times and then it dissolves. Mm. Like it's that that 
you know, just because it's difficult to keep a schedule going and showing up all the time. It takes a lot of buy-in. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, for the, I wanted to play that kind of game. So that's why I became a dungeon master was one that's based around the character. Let's explore your character. Let's explore their background. Let's talk, let's go and talk to their family if they have any, which is a trope that no dungeon dragons character has a family. They're all dead. That's why you're adventuring. (laughs) But, you know, let's go experience, let's go explore that part of the character. And that's why I became a dungeon master was because I could never find a game that would let me play like that. Yeah. Um, so I think that's I think it's a lot of people's experience. Yeah. Like, like I have a great idea for a game and none of you people are doing it, so I'll just do it myself. <laughs> you know, this is how that happens. Right, right. It's interesting, Will, because when I dungeon mastered, I had that same uh, dread. I mean, we were in high school, so we could get together a lot more than you know people with jobs and such can. Yeah. Uh, but what what I would do with a new campaign is just start everyone out with ten thousand experience points. And I said, well, whatever level that gets you in whatever class you want, that's where we'll start. We'll just say that you've been doing this for a while. Yeah. Precisely because everyone wanted that high-level cool stuff, and I wanted to be able to work it into my stories, but I didn't want to wait six years to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and on you know, on that note, just to, again, you're talking about you know enjoying one, one another's company. Uh, our friend uh, Rebecca Lynn Spent many a weekend playing. In fact, I just asked my old DM to get another campaign going. I'm still friends with the people I played with. And so, yeah, that uh, wanting to do cool things together is sort of a universal. Um, so we have two more, like, sort of uh, topics. We want to get to, I guess Will has some ethical parameters for his uh, for his game and uh, how this uh, Dungeons and Dragons can kind of contribute to a hermeneutic of uh, biblical interpretation. We want to get to that. But I, one thing I like to do on this show is, uh, as we're inflating a balloon to poke some holes in the balloon too <laughs> and deflate it a little bit. And I do think it's, um, worth considering. I mean, we got, I got a couple really great, um, uh, cautionary comments about this game as well. And so I, I want to kind of get your guys' opinion about some of the kind of ickier aspects, um, of, the game as it's played and as it's lived out in these communities. Um, just so we can, again, transcend them, be aware of these issues so that we can make them better. Right. Um, so Vic- Victoria Reynolds farmer. Um, I finally started adventuring with an all female party in college because the first party I played with had an initiation ritual wherein they raped the characters of female players repeatedly. And that's how 16-year-old me learned that nerd culture is pretty misogynistic. Okay? So, yeah, uh, Will's got a horrified look on his face. Um, and so, uh, and then Brandon uh, Gerbrocht, oops, I'm sorry, not Brandon, Brian Brennan, Brian Bennett, excuse me, um, how about some of the difficulty D&D has with race? In the recent Tomb of Annihilation, there were critiques of the portrayal of non-Western cultures slipping back into stereotypes, re- uh, reduction of complex cultures with variations into one standard trope. Examples, uh, Asian settings getting shortened to Oriental. So there is a, a tradition, if you will, um, to maybe extend that word further than it needs to be extended, but of... Um, I mean, this is connected to the whole Gamergate um, uh, mm-hmm. uh, pro- controversy, right? So what what do you guys make of, uh, what do you have to say to those? I know that you you obviously don't support those uses of the game, right? But w- what do you say to those? Yeah, first of all, I mean, Victoria's experience, I mean, that is horrifying. I had seen it on Facebook uh, yesterday when I was prepping for the show. And I mean, I, I had heard rumors of that, but I mean, as is so often the case in these, 
stories, you know, I've, I've never been around when they've happened. Right. So, I mean, you know, that is, you know, one of the reasons why, uh, I think it is good for, you know, women to form gaming groups. Um, you know, beyond just, you know, the obvious, you know, don't ever do that. And it's terrible that anyone ever did. There's not much I have to say about that. I mean, other than, I mean, it, it, you know, actually I'm about to say a bunch about it. Shoot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> such an English professor <laughs> that, I mean, this reminds me of, you know, what I've read around in, um, Rene Girard, right. Uh, nerd culture for all of its complexity and for all of its terror sometimes emerges out of this mimetic desire to be the powerful ones. Yeah. And, you know, in cases like the one that Victoria just narrated, uh, that gets taken out, not on fictional characters as it often did in my own Dungeons and Dragons games. I'm not going to pretend, but on the people who are there like actual human beings. And, you know, that's always a danger and that's always a terror. And, you know, um, we can explain it, but we should never explain it to the point where we start to think that it is somehow normal, much less good. No, I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I, and I agree with the Gerard reference and, and, um, you see that a lot in nerd culture. Some, uh, you see that not, not a lot. Sometimes you just see that a lot in nerd culture that when, once it's become popular, <clears throat> And I've participated in it. So, like, once comic books have become popular, once the Marvel movies became popular, once Dungeons and Dragons became popular, you now have the old school friend, people who were who were fans back when it wasn't cool to be a fan, getting upset that new people are becoming fans. Yeah. But yet, when we when we were when we were ridiculed for being fans, all we wanted was to not be ridiculed for being fans. Yeah. Like it's just. It's unfortunately part of who we are as human beings that we do the thing that we didn't want done to us, to others. Um, if I'm going to make a biblical reference, if I had, if you know, that party's lucky that she didn't go Deborah with a tent peg the first time she had to keep watch at night on their <laughs> on their characters. Uh, uh, that's just uh, that's pretty grotesque. Um, yeah, I can't. I, I, that's just, I can't, I, I mean, I've done, I, I, we, we've all, if you've played any of the games long enough and you played them when you were a teenager and you were, you know, we didn't, we didn't think as far ahead. We didn't have enough life experience behind us to think as far ahead of us as we would have wanted that I did things as a player, as a dungeon master, not to my player characters, but to the, the non, the, the fictional NPCs. And I wouldn't do now. And I don't know if I'd be comfortable with a group I was running doing it. I actually run a group for it's my wife and three other women, and uh, um, it's the funnest, funniest, most wacky, zany adventures. And I'm so sorry that she had to experience that. Yeah. But I, I think that is a I think that is a huge part of nerd culture, and I think that's something that um, we're going to struggle with at any. As our culture changes, those things that were in the dark as they get brought into the light, so to speak, not trying to be you know deep and philosophical about it, but just when they become more popular. Or Gospel of John. Yeah, we got we're Gospel of John mm-hmm. about it. Um, but when they become, when those things become popular and they get brought and they get the sh- spotlight shown on them for their fifteen minutes of fame, it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, it's it's 
it's happening with it's happening with soccer. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been a uh, I grew up playing football, but was always kind of a secret, like was always a soccer fan, and we try to watch it whenever I could. And then I went and studied abroad in England and became a huge English Premier League fan because I was there and got to experience it. But now, as it's becoming more popular, like it's showing up on more TV stations and getting off the just specialty sports networks, people are getting upset. You know, oh, you're just Fairweather fan now. It's like, dude, let people be fans. Like, yeah. it's got to start somewhere. You know. Um, and so that, I think that happens often, and, and at that moment that you can grab a little bit of power, you exercise it as hard as you can. Yeah. is unfortunately a very dark part of just kind of who we are as human beings. Yeah, and that what Victoria is describing is an exercise of power. It's putting people in their place um, so they yeah. know who's really running the, the joint, right? And so, yeah, and it, I mean, what I'm, it's, I'm reminded of you know, people who came to America for religious freedom, then using that freedom to inhibit you to yeah. you know to sort of uh step on the freedom of other people you know what i mean Out, once they had that power established and so for yeah a long time gaming and um comics and and that sort of thing were a refuge for people who had been put upon by the world right um and, yeah. and they were a place that where people could gather and uh and and find shelter from that and it becomes this sort of um a uh, fortress to defend then and then when you uh, when you get into these situations where other people are wanting in you end up replicating the very problem that caused you to go there as well right and, yeah. and i think that that is definitely part of human nature um working on a show right now about the whole incel thing um uh, megan von bergen and, and a friend of hers are gonna uh, join me um and i think there's something about that there's something about people who feel like the world is sort of bad to them creating a community that can become poisonous if it isn't careful. Right. And so, yeah. um, yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because you, you, we end up taking that thing that like we take that pain that, that drove us there. We take that pain and we hold and We don't actually, we don't ever actually work on it. We just yeah. take it. We carry it with us in there. And then once we, once we have the power, we then try to pat, we try to shove that pain into somebody else. Now you take it, you carry it. Yeah. Instead of, instead of in, in we just pass that pain along to the next person instead of actually dealing with it at yeah. any point. And, and I think that's exactly, I think that's what happens whenever these cultures expand. And you would think that people who know Tolkien and would read Lord of the Rings would understand that danger. Right. Um, and, yeah. But, uh, but it's the, they're sort of utterly blind to it and how they're living with themselves. But you also asked a question about race. Yeah. That's where I was going to get to next. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that kind of goes with it. Like, you know, when, Let's just recognize when the game, like Gary Gygax started this game in 1974 with a group of friends that were playing in Wisconsin. Yeah. And so it's, I mean, that's, there's a group of people meeting in his basement in Wisconsin playing this game and he and another buddy published the game and that's where it started. Mm-hmm. Um, but it came out of white Western European middle, you know, idealized, romanticized medieval, medieval culture. Mm-hmm. And that's, we and, and so trying to expand that image and bring in more people from different backgrounds that's really hard. Yeah. Um. Like I played the Tomb of Annihilation game, uh, that that mission that it was talking about, published by uh, the the people who make Dungeons and Dragons. And yeah, yeah, they uh, it's the first time you go to a place where the majority population speaks a language that's not yours. Mm-hmm. That's not. But they're they're that the that the majority race humans speaks a different language like because everywhere else in the game 
it's just called common. Everybody speaks common. That's why it's common. But then you go to this place, and they're all humans, but they don't look like the normal human, and they don't speak the same language. Like it does, very, it is very reductionistic. I get mm. that image uh, uh, of it. I, I completely agree that it's it's difficult to under, to expand. You know, they tried to include. I don't remember when they started including a class called the monk, and that was their ability. That was their attempt to try and include Eastern culture, you know, Asian culture into the game. They didn't. I mean, it's very limited. It's very narrow. Uh, I'll admit that it is extremely narrow in its 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 workings and its in its in its image of what Asian culture looks like. Yeah. Although even in the '90s when I was playing, there were campaign settings that you know, uh, as the listener said, I mean, were broadly Asian, mm-hmm. um, and you know had you know character classes like samurai, ninja, monk, so on and so forth. Um, I think part of that, though, has its roots in the genre fantasy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because, I mean, when you deal with... Um, well, I mean, when you deal with Tolkien's novels, just, let's just start where, the, where it starts, right? I mean, you're dealing with settings where people have old English names, but they don't live on an island, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are critters from Norse mythology running around and interacting with critters from German mythology running around with, you know... Um, gigantic elephants running around with, you know, all these different, you know, sorts of things that are sort of a mishmash of broadly European and Mediterranean mythologies. Uh, but you're never actually in Germany. You're never actually in Italy. You're never actually in England. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I guess there's a part of me that says, I mean, when you try to create a campaign setting, uh, that is not European based, but is African based, Asian based, South American based, right? I think the impulse there, and I don't know whether to call it, you know, uh, a temptation or whether to call it, you know, just a tendency more neutrally, is going to be to fictionalize those places um, in the same way that Europe gets fictionalized in Tolkien's novels. Does that make some sense? So, I mean, I, I don't know that it excuses it. Uh, but I think that, you know, the fact that you don't have a Korea in Dungeons and Dragons might be for the same reason that you don't have a France in Dungeons mm-hmm. and Dragons. Well, you also have a bunch of people who aren't from those places fictionalizing it. So it's yeah. different with Tolkien. He lives in Europe. Fictionalizing yeah, true Europe. enough. True enough. You know, and this is and, and these are people living in the United States trying to fictionalize Asia, yeah. trying to fictionalize Africa. And that's I think that's another reason that it, it, it ends up being very um reductionistic in its narr- in, in, in its interpretation of what those places would look like in a fantasy world. And, and I'm not an expert on fantasy fiction at all, but um, it does seem to me a genre that is extremely self-referential and and so it's basically every new fantasy is a patchwork of motifs and tropes and uh, characterizations from older inherited pieces of fantasy. So it's a very much a, uh, it pays honor to its tradition. Um, every, mm-hmm. every, and so, I mean, this goes, I'm thinking back to Robert E. Howard and, and Conan. Um, oh, yeah. Like definitely racist, like Robert E. Howard has uh, uh, some, uh, like uh, he established a lot of these tropes that we, for whatever reason, keep going back to um, because they are so important in the genre that we're paying honor to so it's almost like we're paying more homage to the genre than we are human beings right and so we're, we're putting human beings at the service of this uh, of being true to the uh, to the uh, to the inherited 
kind of language and images of this genre. And so um, I think that's a problem. And yeah, and when I mean growing, I'm just like scanning in my mind the bookshelves of the fantasy section at the local bookstore, and I don't ever see muscle-bound black men uh, on the covers. It's always you know muscle-bound white men, right? And so, yeah. um, and so I think that there's just a, a, a lack of imagination, uh, ironically enough, that can um, create, as as Brian is saying, some of these uh, kind of retrograde racist tropes uh, that we just keep going to because that's just the way the language exists for this genre. And so, yeah, yeah. it's definitely I, a problem. And, and one of the, but one of the, I think one to the flip side that one of the redeeming qualities of any role-playing game, not just Dungeons and Dragons, but any game you play is that it was like uh, kind of what Nathan was talking about at the very beginning you're the one who's in charge of creating this yeah. and making this work. Yeah. Like you're going to run into situations where you have to make your own rules, but you have the ability also to make your own world. Yes. To make your own characters. Um, one of the, I'm, one of the redeeming, I think one of the redeeming things about the game is you don't have to be steeped in that genre of self-referential self-referential fantasy in order to play it. So for instance, I'm going to be very open and honest in my confession here. I'm not a huge reader of fantasy literature, mm. personally. I mean, I've read Tolkien. I have. I own it. I love it. Um, but I'm more of a science fiction guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the way science fiction deals with the way with deals with some of our moral quandaries by projecting them into a future, and make and, and highlighting the differences by using races from other worlds to represent the differences in cultures and classes that we have on our on our own planet. I think that's a very so, so you can tell I'm also a very deep Star Trek fan because yeah. that's exactly what Roddenberry tried to do often. Yeah, uh, and even it has its limitations. Yeah, you know, recognizing every genre does, but the beauty about doing it with dun- about using Dungeons and Dragons is it's just a framework for me. Like it doesn't have to be like it's just a very it, it can be just a framework that you use as a as a as a as a vehicle to tell a story. So like a. If, if there's people listening that are interested in wanting to play or wanting to be a better dungeon master, like this isn't the place for dungeon master tips. There's a bajillion channels on YouTube you can go watch for that. Yeah. But you know, even that said, you know, I, I still think there's value in reading those stories that are put out by the people who make the games. So like Tomb of Annihilation, but you don't have to play them. Yeah. And and, and you can just take things from it and use it and make your make a better make a better story. Yeah. Um, and I encourage people to do that because I, I, I do want these games I do want them to be I, I want the experience of playing the game not just the game the experience of playing the game to be an open experience for people yeah and and as far as segues go this one is like sitting on a t-ball stick for me here to hit so um, in order to overcome some of these uh, horrible traditions that we can sometimes unknowingly fall into it helps to have some ethical parameters set up so will I hear you have some ethical parameters uh, for the games that you lead yeah and, uh, and, and now we've heard Victoria's story we, we know why we need them right absolutely exactly yeah I mean so number one it no matter what game I'm playing, what group I'm playing with, if I'm in charge of the game, uh, and even if I'm a player, I'm going to ask for, uh, we don't do rape scenes. That ain't happening. Like, it may be something that happens in the story, but we're not describing it, and we're not going into detail, and we're not ta- like we're going to mention it and move on. You can. Everybody else has an imagination; and they can figure that out on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm very, I'm as a dungeon master, I'm very leery of, of how players interact when it comes to trying to exert power over one another. And when it becomes coercive and, and like detrimental and not just part of the story, I might like, you know, when it becomes gratuitous, I, sp- I speak up. But I also am very open about negotiating with my players mm. before we start the game. Like, we need to talk and, 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 and we, because we want this to be a space that's uh, enriching and enliven, in, in, enriching for people and fun for people. So, I, you know, tell me what things do you not want to talk about? Like, or what makes you uncomfortable? What, you know, um, I've played a game once where we had a woman at the table who, um, I mean, it's, it's just very poignant to be talking about this at this time. So uh, forgive me. Um, who had an experience of sexual assault. And so she was like, I just, you know, I, I'm, she didn't get into it. She didn't, wasn't going to tell us all about it. She's like, it happened to me. I don't want it. I don't want it to happen in, in the game. Cool. It's not happening then. Mm-hmm. But that requires a level of trust and a level of openness. But I think those kind of ethical parameters are important because it's supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be something that you go home and, you know, if you cry about it, if you're going to, if, if it's going to cause you to cry, it's going to cause you to cry because of this story you're telling is so beautiful or so sad or passionate or whatever. Not because the people at your table were such jerks. You know, that should be, that, that should not be an experience that people have. And it frustrates me that it is. So I try to create those ethical places so that, you know, it's the game and the storytelling and the experience that drives our emotions, not the interactions of the people with one another. Yeah, and if we can like use um, the game as sort of a parallel to, to the Christian walk, then, I mean, if you have some sort of religious boundaries to kind of moderate your behavior, I mean, that's sort of the role that, that plays in our life, right? That's, you know, the whatever command, the ethical commands of, of the Bible um, keep us you know, from doing terrible things uh, in our in our real world, right? And so yeah. incorporating and that to, into the main game is important. And overall, I try to be center set in my ethics. So like we try to have an ethic we're shooting for as opposed to boundary set where we're drawing lines. Yeah. But, so, but, they're, but they both exist, boundary and center set ethics, and they're both important. And so there are some bound, like the we don't do rape scenes is a boundary ethic. We don't sure. do torture. I don't do torture scenes. Like if, if the players want to go dark on that route, they can go find another dungeon master, or we can just say, "Okay, you did it. Here's the information. Let's move on." Yeah. But you know, I'm not gonna. I don't want to do that. Um, I don't do sex scenes. Mm-hmm. Characters. I mean, human beings have sex. Sex is a part of our human experience. And, I mean, it's. It, 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 and so, it, if we're gonna tell a real game, it's part of our character's experience. But we don't have to describe it all. Like yeah. I'm not writing. I'm not writing. You know, softcore porn here. Like sure. we're not doing that. Um, so, I mean, those are just some of the ethics. Those are some of the boundary ethics, but we try to have center set ethics. Like we want to tell a good story. We're, we're focusing on building relationships. We're focusing on having a time of, of mutual, uh, enjoyment. You know, we're trying to, we try to focus more on our center set ethics than our boundary set ethics. Yeah. Well, um, Nathan, um, let's kind of wrap this up with a, maybe sort of a, what can we learn moment? Um, uh, what kind of attention do gamers pay uh, to the work that they're doing that might pay off for preachers? Well, I kind of already tipped my hand earlier on this, but uh, it strikes me that, you know, like I said, I played, uh, you know, uh, dice and pencils games for about six years before I went to college. Um, And I think that among other things, you know, I learned really to pay attention to characters, really to pay attention to what, 
things cause other things in a story. Really pay attention to how where we are influences what we do and who we are. Uh, so in other words, I mean, you know, on one level, uh, a lot of the things that I'm that I do best as a literature professor have roots at the very least in those years of playing role-playing games, right? I, I think that something similar happens uh, when I'm dealing especially with uh, narrative passages, when I'm preaching a narrative passage, again, paying attention to those relationships to the contingency of the situation, the setting, uh, you know, the characters involved, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, it's not identical. You know, I don't, I don't roll dice to see if, you know, Jesus makes it off the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, but at the very least, uh, you know, that Mount of uh, Transfiguration, you know, I don't treat it as an isolated thing. And I think, you know, at least one of the things in my life that has generated that habit of mind is, you know, precisely dungeon mastering, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that it is a an oddity uh, that most of the Dungeons & Dragons players at Emmanuel College are ministry majors. I also think it's a good oddity rather than a bad one. <laughs> it's progress so, for me, yeah. <laughs> Will, what do you got to add to that? So, uh, for me, what I've taken away and brought into the pulpit as somebody who, who when I preach, is... Uh, trying to tell a better story, trying to be more creative. So the creativity may not necessarily be the narrative kind of aspect of it, so, but it may allow me it just just to be able to think and do stuff on my feet differently. To not, and I, I'm a manuscript preacher. I don't do a lot of outline anymore. Um, but when I'm writing, I, I try to be more creative. It allows the, the game because you're trying to, you're trying to imagine a world with, you, the theater, the imagination is one of the things from the books about how to play the game is you're imagining these scenarios and scenes, but then it just to help you see a little differently when you try to problem solve in your character, you know, for the game. So that then when I come to writing a sermon, it's not necessarily my th- my preaching professor would probably be really upset with me that I don't follow just the tips he gave me in my preaching class. But Dungeons and Dragons has given me the ability to be a little more creative with how I craft a sermon. So maybe there is a narrative thread, or at least an ideological thread, or some kind of there's something that's different than what I would have done earlier because I'm just I'm just trying to be more creative. Let's just throw because part of it is just trying it. Let's just see what happens. Sometimes it goes great and you have a great, credible story. Sometimes it goes wrong and it's hilarious to watch people fall, you know, in your game, that is. So then you can just start trying things. So you just try something in your sermon and write it and you go, you know what? That stinks. I'm going to do something else. Yeah. Or that's great. I want to use that. Just, it gives me the courage to be more creative Yeah. because I'm more creative in the game. Yeah. There's something, I mean, there's something about learning and the imagination that I think um, as education in America, at least has become more and more kind of routinized and, and mechanical. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've kind of underplayed the value of spontaneity and creativity and that sort of thing. And I think reaching people's imagination in the learning process is uh, something I find really useful in the classes I teach. Whenever I teach a, a, a novel class, or a, you know, a literature class of some sort, I always have some creative project for them to do just uh, in, as a way to apply the, the material that we've been uh, talking about that semester. Because I really do think it, when I see them really jump into those topics, they demonstrate to me a deeper understanding of the material that we've been covering because mm-hmm. they've accessed it with a different part of their brain. And so absolutely um, approaching 
learning of any kind, uh, and I think religious learning counts as well, uh, and hitting it not just on an informational level, a factual, logical level, but also sort of a creative level just makes the connections happen more deeply. And and I think people are more engaged with it. And and I think that I've called it neuroscience or magic. I don't know, but I think there's something, (laughs) I think there's something, uh, there's something there. And it's something that I've tried to do as a teacher. Um, um, fellas, uh, any last thoughts on Dungeons and Dragons and Dungeon Masters and Baptist Pastors? <laughs> uh, no, I, I, oh, go sorry. ahead, Will. Oh, everybody needs to run down to your comic book store. There's a There usually is a bulletin board that says, hey, we're looking for a person for our game. And go play a game. And give it a shot. Roll up a character. Play the game. Even if it's not Dungeons and Dragons. Just go give it a shot. And when you're there, just... Try stuff. Get to know the people at the table and try things. Just give it a shot. See what happens. Yep. I totally agree. Um, fellas, this was a lot of fun for me. As someone who is uh, not a player myself of this or haven't been, um, I really do appreciate it. Uh, and the way that you've described it just made it seem like a beautiful way to kind of overcome some of the real, I think, staggering social issues that we, we face as a society. So um, I really do appreciate the conversation. This has been a lot of fun. It's been a particularly fun episode for me. And so, uh, and I think you may have convinced me to give it a shot. So um, those of you who are listening, uh, respond to the show. Anything you hear you want to add to the conversation uh think of it as a uh, a collaborative creative effort here and so just like dungeons and dragons itself go to the facebook page and and comment on the, sh- the link to the to the show on the show notes i will i've been jotting down stuff that we've been talking about and i'll try and provide links to all that stuff um but by all means let us know what you think uh go out and play some D and uh, enjoy your day Aww.